You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World, translated by Simon Blaxland de Lange. This is Lecture 2, given in Dornach on the 14th of November, 1914. If we merely concern ourselves with the physical body, it is very difficult to arrive at experiences of the kind that we spoke about last time. This is especially so in the case of the peoples represented by the nations of the modern world, those of Europe and America. The physical human body in these areas is formed from within to far less a degree than, for example, in Asia and Africa. Amongst the populations of Asia and Africa, the physical body is fashioned to a greater extent from inner resources from forces residing in the ether body. In the case of the peoples of Europe and America, the forces that form the physical body are derived to a greater extent from external influences. We could put it this way. If we would seek the forces that form man's physical body, we will find them in etheric forces. For the inhabitants of Africa and Asia, these etheric forces lie more within their own ether body, whereas for those living in Europe and America, they lie to a greater extent in the ether world that surrounds man. People in Africa and Asia are therefore related more to inner ether forces, while those in Europe and America have a stronger connection with external ether forces and, hence, with nature spirits. To express what has become clear to us from a spiritual scientific study as simply as possible, we can say that the physical body of African and Asiatic peoples is molded more from within through the agency of inner formative forces. The bodies of European and American peoples, in contrast, are fashioned more through a response to the conditions of the outside world, which impress themselves upon these moldable forms and hence shape the forms of the physical body. In my book titled The Threshold of the Spiritual World, I pointed out that as soon as we take account of man's ether body, we find that he has a much closer connection with the whole organism of the earth than we would believe if we were to confine our attention to the physical body alone. The earth itself is a kind of living being, However, whereas man is a living being who appears to us as a self-contained entity so that we cannot help experiencing him as such, we must necessarily view the earth as a living organism of such a kind that we see in it a multiplicity of natural beings in constant interaction with one another. The earth consists first and foremost of the solid earthly substance itself that forms the continents. However, what we regard as this material solidity of the earth is nothing but maya. 
true reality consists of a large number of nature spirits, who are in turn under the guidance of spirits of the higher hierarchies. That it is massed together and compressed and functions as solid earthly substance is an aspect of maya. The earth is spirit through and through. I have frequently emphasized this. Now the earth does not merely consist of solid earthly substance, but also the water that permeates it. And insofar as the substance of the earth finds expression in fluid matter, we are, in a similar way, dealing with water as maya. The reality is that here again there are a large number of nature spirits. It is the same with air and also with the warmth that pervades and envelops the earth. Everything consists of a multitude of nature spirits, while matter as such is merely the outward illusion that is maya. In the case of Europeans, we will confine ourselves to them for the moment, there is to a far greater extent than in Asia and Africa a continual exchange of impulses between their own inner ether forces and the elemental beings residing in fire, water, air, and earth. These elemental beings influence human ether bodies from without, and these ether bodies thereby receive the formative forces which are then manifested in the appearance and functions of the physical body, including the faculty of speech and language. For speech is wholly a function of the physical body, and yet the impulses for it reside in the ether body. Now, to the extent that from the way man lives on the earth and is, through the mediating power of his ether body, an earthly being, one regards him as belonging to the earth. One has to consider the various ways in which the distinctive beings of earth, water, air, and so forth exert their influences upon the human ether body. For the elemental and etheric beings of earth are completely different in nature from the etheric and elemental beings of water. So that we can say that the mere fact that someone lives as a physical being in the mountains or by the sea means that different beings exert a greater influence on his etheric body. In the case of someone who lives by the sea, the elemental beings who have their maya expression in water have a much greater influence than with a person who lives in the mountains. Where someone lives in the mountains, the beings who live in earth have a greater influence than those who have their maya expression in water. Now, I must emphasize that this process of the forming and fashioning of man's being, and I am referring especially to Europeans here, is the result of a collaboration between the elemental spirits and the way in which these elemental spirits of nature work manifests something of the process that forms man from the spiritual world, insofar as he is an earthly being. I spoke to you last time of how the culture of Eastern Europe was preceded by a cultural environment where people were so constituted that they still had something in their souls which in modern human beings has been thrust back into their subconscious minds, namely, a division of the soul into sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul. I pointed out to you that the Finns, the great Finnish people of olden times, 
for its present representatives are no more than a remnant of a people that was formerly widespread, had souls which, through a certain ancient clairvoyance that they possessed, had in their direct daytime experience something of the nature of a division of their souls into their sentient, intellectual or mind-soul and consciousness components. I also told you that in the great epic of the Kalevala we have in the three figures of Vainamoinen, Ilmarinen and Lemminkainen a portrayal of how this tripartite soul is directed and determined from out of the cosmos. How could something of this nature come about? How was it that at a particular place in Europe, for it is valid to ask this, a great people was able to evolve which had the kind of soul that I have described? Now, the way that man develops his own ego, the gift of the earth, depends on the influence upon him of the spirits of the earth from below upward through the maya of earthly matter. These spirits of the earth work from below upward, as it were, through the solid earth. And in our present age, these spirits of the earth essentially have the task of summoning forth the ego nature within a human being. If something of what lies beneath the ego nature something more spiritual and more closely connected with divine forces. For when the soul experiences itself as split up into three, it is more closely linked to the divine forces than where this is not so. Were to shine into the souls of a race such as the ancient Finnish people, then it would not merely be the earth with its elemental spirits, that would be raying upward from below into man's earthly nature, but something else must be streaming into this earthly aspect of man, another elemental influence. Now just as man's physical existence, insofar as it is an earthly existence, where man develops his ego, is intimately connected with the spirits of the earth element, that is with the spirits who work from the earth itself, from below upward, so does man's soul nature, which is proclaimed through inner qualities of temperament and character, have a connection with everything that lives on the earth as a watery element. Thus the spirits of the watery fluid element must pervade these souls that are divided in this threefold way. In our present age it is the earthly element which has a formative influence upon the ego that is of importance. When another element, for example the watery element, exerts an influence, it works more from the spiritual world. It is not to be found in man himself. It must, as it were, become embodied within man as a spiritual being in order that he receives into his earthly nature something that leads him into the spiritual world. Let us suppose that the surface of the blackboard represents the place whence the elemental forces of the earth proceed. If a spiritual element wants to find a kind of embodiment there, it must proceed from the organism of the earth, from something that is in itself spiritual. There must be a being, a real being, who is not man himself and who inspires him to experience this threefold division of the soul. A being must be present 
whose influence upon the soul from the spirituality inherent in nature is such that the sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul are separated out, so that the human souls are able to say, my sentient soul is being influenced from nature by something that I can call Vainamoinen, streaming toward me like a being of nature, and giving me the forces of the sentient soul. But there is also an influence of the nature of Ilmarinen, which gives me the forces of the intellectual or mind-soul, and then the further influence of Lemminkainen, something that gives me the forces of the consciousness-soul. If we postulate a being that stretches out its feelers into nature from a kind of neck, see the diagram, a being that has its main body here and then extends its feelers in this direction, so that we can associate one of the feelers with the sentient soul, while a second tentacle is extended here and a third one here, the nature being has a body and thrusts out its soul in the form of feelers as a source of inspiration, with the result that ether bodies are able to form, which give the soul the capacity to feel itself as having a threefold nature. The inhabitants of ancient Finland said, we live here, but we can feel something like three mighty beings that are not beings of the physical plane, but nature beings. They are unveiled from the West. They are three parts or organs of a great being that has its body over yonder, but it extends its tentacles, Vainamoinen, Ilmarinen, and Lemminkainen, in this direction. A mighty sea being spreads itself out from West to East, stretching out its feelers and endowing this race with the threefold soul. The peoples who still experienced this felt it in the way that I have explained and also spoke of it in the Kalevala. People today who live only on the physical plane say, here is the western sea extending in this direction. This is the Gulf of Bothnia. This is the Gulf of Finland. And here the Gulf of Riga. But, if we would penetrate to the spiritual aspect of the outward physical phenomena, we need to put together what is presented to us in the form of a kind of cross-section of nature. Down there it is all water. Up above is air. People breathe the air, and the watery world of sea is a great mighty being that is merely differently formed from what we are accustomed to. It is a mighty being that is spread out over that region. And the people of an earlier race had a quite particular and distinctive connection with this being. And as for the folk spirits, they have the elemental beings that live in countless such expressions of soul conditions as instruments for their work. They are organized like an army for the purpose of working right into the ether body. And from the ether body they make it possible for man's physical body to be a fitting instrument for what is to be his special mission on the earth. Only when we are able to view the forms that we encounter in nature as the expression of the spiritual dimension will we understand nature itself in its connection with man. For it is not enough simply to look thoughtlessly at where land and sea meet, but rather do we need to understand what comes to expression in these forms. 
It could even occur to someone, looking at a person's face, to say, yes, I can see certain forms. This is where human flesh and air meet. If someone says such a thing, it makes little sense. The form only begins to mean anything when one understands it as the expression of a human being, as a countenance. In a similar way, one can only understand what is being described here if one conceives of it as the physiognomy of a mighty being who stretches out certain parts of its body from the ocean. There is much that goes on below the threshold of consciousness, and it is not for nothing that the spirits of form have created the forms that we find in nature. These forms can be understood. They are the expression of an inner essence. And when we become pupils of the spirits of form, we ourselves create forms that express what lives in the inner essence of the worlds of nature and of the spirit. Thus, for example, forms will be carved in our architraves, in what lies above the columns, which really are the expression of that spiritual quality which is to be brought into connection with all that goes on within the building. Man is essentially a being who emerges with his outward form from a sea, from a sea of reality, of hidden reality, in which he is submerged. This is another example of how we must penetrate behind Maya if we really want to understand what confronts us in the world, and especially if we want to understand man in all his manifestations. Hence it is often necessary for us to immerse ourselves in what lives within man without his being aware of it, and which he only gradually learns through knowledge being imparted to him. Whenever we turn our eyes, we cannot help initially beholding this outer maya, and we then need to be clearly aware that behind this outer maya lies something of the greatest complexity. If we had the inclination to probe everywhere into what lies behind maya, an infinite harmony would prevail in the whole of man's being. For this human essence is related by means of an infinite wealth of sub-earthly impulses to a harmonious one-fold essence. And everything that exists in the world can only be understood if one examines it in relation to what lies beneath the surface of existence. There is always a one-sided aspect to anything viewed in terms of maya. I should like to illustrate this in the following way. After all, such things as we have been speaking about can only be understood in their entirety by degrees. I should like to show you how difficult it is in ordinary life to make a proper investigation of everything that lies beneath the surface of the phenomena that we encounter. Thus, for example, it is highly possible that very few of our dear friends have noticed that in a recent lecture I spoke quite intimately about Switzerland about some fundamental aspects of the Swiss character. I do not know how many of you still have any recollection of what I am referring to. You may perhaps recall that after the four lectures that I gave on titled Occult Reading and Occult Hearing, I added a lecture in which I spoke at length about Hermann Grimm from a purely historical point of view. This was a lecture when I had a great deal to say about Switzerland. However, 
one must go back to the inner aspect of this question, to what lies below the surface. Why is this? To repeat what you already know very well, man consists of his physical body, ether body, astral body, and ego or I nature. We know that the ego and astral body leave a person's physical and ether body as he sleeps and reside, as it were, in the periphery in the spiritual world. So this is a world of which we can say that at night we dwell within it, a world where elemental etheric beings also live. Here too are those spiritual elemental beings who are connected with the whole process of forming our physical existence. They are all living and active there. A number of elemental beings are associated with the entire development of our physical existence. In a lecture cycle that I held in Kassel, on the connection of St. John's Gospel with the other Gospels, I spoke of how a human individual is connected through his ancestors with the beings of an elemental nature. As you can read in this lecture cycle, I indicated that if we picture his four bodily members in this way, and there's a diagram, a person inherits what lives more in his physical body and his ego from his father's side. Anyone who has read this lecture cycle carefully will recall that what lives more in the ether body and astral body is inherited from the mother's side. Now, when we fall asleep, our physical and etheric bodies, that is a paternal and maternal element, are lying in bed. Our ego and astral body are in the periphery. The astral body contains what is impressed upon our feelings and our whole disposition and temperament, everything that gives us our character, and into this, that endows us with our soul disposition, their work, the elemental beings, who in the course of time bring from the ancestors to their descendants the forces that can enable them to fulfill their potential. In a personality such as Hermann Grimm, something quite distinctive was going on, for the influence of his immediate ancestors can be observed in him. His immediate ancestors, his father and his uncle, were the collectors of fairy tales, which they heard people telling. They would simply listen while they were being related to them and they wrote them down. But one cannot do this unless one has an astral body which has a predisposition for having a particular inclination for this. Such factors need to be deeply rooted in the whole background to what happened. Hermann Grimm has a particular way of expressing himself with a certain intellectual finesse which almost approaches spiritual science. He has this quality because there was in his family background a strong inclination toward fairy tales and toward any spirituality deriving from nature we see how the nature spirits conveyed something to him that they allowed to continue to resound when Hermann Grimm's ego and astral body were outside his physical and ether bodies. Who was it who first told fairy tales to his father and uncle with such clarity and vividness, as though intimately in tune with an elemental being? The wife of Hermann Grimm's father, in other words, his mother, Hermann Grimm's mother was the enlivening element in the way that these fairy tales were transmitted. She had a particular joy 
in listening to these fairy tales as they lived amongst the people, and she imbibed them in such a way that the two brothers Grimm, Hermann Grimm's father and uncle, were able to write them down. Who was this mother? Dorothea Grimm, whose maiden name was Wilt, was from an old Bernese family. She herself was a citizen of Bern, and her ancestors had fought in the Battle of Morton. All the feelings that she had acquired there among the elemental spirits then came with her to Hesse, for her father, Hermann Grimm's grandfather, had migrated there from Bern and had trained as a pharmaceutical chemist, thereafter moving to Kassel and founding the Sonnenapotheca there. So if we want to understand the nature of the influence of elemental spirits upon Hermann Grimm and what was responsible for the particular configuration of his intellectual faculties, for these spirits were active within him while he was asleep, we must think of Switzerland. And if we are speaking of what is really characteristic of Hermann Grimm, we are actually speaking of the Bernese part of Switzerland. Thus, sometimes we can gain an insight into the essential significance of a phenomenon, even though, outwardly, it is wholly veiled with Maya. We need to be aware of the particular soul qualities of Hermann Grimm's mother, if we are wanting to understand the distinctive configuration of his mind. Thus, in emphasizing the spiritual element lying beneath the threshold of consciousness, I spoke of something directly Swiss in nature. And when I spoke of Hermann Grimm, I was referring specifically to a Bernese Switz quality. Hence it is not difficult to see why this way of presenting indications should have given rise to a particular warmth of feeling among many of our friends. It is therefore not simply a question of what we encounter in an external sense, but of what is really living in these outward phenomena. The earth with all that it contains, the earth as a one-fold essence, is indeed in intimate connection with what man can be upon it, with what is formed or fashioned around man through the mediating function of the ether body. Now that I have made it clear to you how we must penetrate the veils of Maya, if we want to understand what is really there, let us return to the sea dragon, who is in a certain sense the inspirer of European humanity and who made its passage from the Atlantic Ocean so as to take on this inspirational role. If we take account of the totality of its elemental etheric beings, this dragon contains everything that is spiritual in European humanity. If we were fully able to understand this dragon and give ourselves up entirely to it, we would all be clairvoyant. But European humanity does not have the task of merely being clairvoyant. Its task is to develop that part of man's soul nature that rises up above clairvoyance, just as islands rise up out of the sea. Thus that which had to evolve quite particularly in the form of the basic types of the fifth post-Atlantean cultural period had to have the particular character of raising itself up in its consciousness from what is purely of soul nature. This had to be inspired by the nature spirits that work through the earth. 
There had to be the possibility of everywhere forming connections with this inspiring being through countless flowing impulses. But the earth element had to raise itself up and emerge amidst the watery element, and this happened when the British Isles, together with the totality of their nature spirits, were lifted up from the surrounding sea that gave them inspiration. When a true spiritual science becomes a reality, people will come to know that in such a continental region the bearers of man's soul, his physical and etheric bodies, must be formed in a manner that accords with the relationship between sea and land. Just as this is conditioned by the elevation of the land above the sea, so in a similar way does man have to fill out certain spaces in his organism through ensuring that they become not muscle but bone, with the result that the soft and hard elements have a particular relationship to one another. This is how the formative process in the great earthly mother proceeds, that out of the fluid element the element of solidity appears. One can therefore say that the earth sends up from its depths the elemental spirits that form the earth in a particular configuration at a specific place of spiritual inspiration so that a land comes into being where bodies are able to live within which the consciousness soul can evolve. Solid land amidst the sea is indeed like a skeletal structure in the world of elemental being. Just as our bone system is embedded in the solid muscular system, so is the solid part of the earth positioned through a particular configuration in the sea. Moreover, the regions of dry land do not arise in the arbitrary way that geologists suppose, but are just as regular in the way that their forms come about as are the forms of our bones, even though this does not occur through cellular activity, as is the case with bones. We need merely to learn to understand why the individual continents have this or that particular form. I should like to make a further comparison which I hope you will not misunderstand. In order that, among this ancient Finnish people, the perceptive faculties of which we have spoken could arise, it was necessary for there to be a land configuration of this nature arising amidst the gulfs of the sea. Just as the human lung lets in the air, so in this configuration of the land can be discerned as though inserted into it tentacles of that great being that has to do with the whole configuration of Europe. We spoke last time about the bodies that are made available for the Russian soul, when this soul incarnates in a Russian body. We showed both on the previous occasion and in the course of other studies that in a Russian body the Russian soul has a gesture of expectation, that it has an inner conception of some future gift and potential. It is therefore necessary for the soul to remain in a certain sense in contact with the world of spirit, otherwise the spirit self could not come into being. On the other hand, this soul must be prevented from evolving too early in those regions that are envisaged for it. Let us examine that where the Baltic Sea is now there was land and that where Russia lies was all sea, 
into which peninsulas projected rather as Italy does. For example, the gulfs of Bothnia, Finland and Riga would extend to the Caspian Sea instead of the land of Russia that we have now. We would then have a seafaring people here navigating these inlets of sea. But that would mean that the bodies could not be formed as they should be in this region. In such a case, the being that stretches out its tentacles here would breathe out what these seafaring folk would receive, and they would develop what they have as a predisposition prematurely, that is, before the time that is right for it. They would develop too early what needs to await a later time. The spirit self must wait for a certain time. It should not be developed too early. Hence, instead of there being sea here, the land must manifest its presence so that the spirit self is not developed too early. While, nevertheless, the possibility remains of receiving the inspirations of this great being. There must not be high mountain ranges like the Alps and also not flat plains, just enough elevation so that the spirit self is not received too soon. There has to be sufficient land to engender the spirit self, extending areas that are more flat than hilly. If there was a seafaring folk here, they would have developed the spirit self long ago. But that would mean that it had evolved before its time and would be inadequately prepared. And now we come to the cosmic intelligence of the earth. The earth has a cosmic intelligence which determines its form so that it raises up land wherever and to the extent that it is necessary in order that the right elemental spirits enter into a connection with the beings on the earth and on the other hand allow the water to have its place to the extent that this is necessary for the inspiring geniuses to be able to be active. As we really look at our earth, we have the impression that in instances where land has been uplifted in this way, we are able to see something similar to a facial expression of one kind or another, where the soul nature becomes manifest in this or that configuration. It is the earth's soul nature that is appearing before us in the particular earthly configuration. Moreover, as we come to consider the human ether body, this essence of man's ether body extends over the entire organism of the earth and is everywhere associated with it. Everywhere we find that the earthly element is such, which is therefore maya for the earth spirits, is for human beings of our time connected with their ego nature, with outward physical nature. Every aspect of water and air is, if viewed spiritually, connected with what man develops that is at variance with his ego nature. For the whole of the earth is there in order to form earthly man. The other aspect as the object of qualifying and varying his nature, which is what can be achieved through the mutual relationship between land, water and air. When we focus upon the southern part of Europe and especially the Greek and Italian peninsulas, we find that through the way that land and water are distributed in this region, the earth is prepared for the bodies that were able to carry the fourth post-Atlantean culture, 
when the intellectual or mind-soul comes preeminently to expression. If the regions of dry land in the south of Europe had been bigger and the inlets of sea smaller, something would inevitably have arisen in Greece and Italy that was supposed to emerge only later. In other words, it would have come about in a way that made it fruitless for the evolutionary process. In order that Greek culture might be able to be repeated, as I have previously indicated, in the Romance culture, a broader land mass had to be extended toward the sea than is the case in Greece. However, this is so in France, and you can discern the relationship that exists between France and Greece precisely expressed in, on the one hand, the physiognomy of Greece, which is everywhere indented by the sea, and on the other that of France, where there are much larger projections of land into the sea. I wanted today to give you some hints in various directions, which will be developed further in our time together. We shall build upon these initial indications when we meet tomorrow. The end of Lecture 2